Professor Jack, yep. Don't call well, me Professor maybe. if you don't want me to kill you. Oh, right, okay, so... so. Slavo, read whatever, don't call... I, I really, I feel so uneasy when somebody calls me Professor. Right. My tent is... Why is that When's then? the Professor? But you are a Professor. Uh, when, why, that's why, my why? problem. I have deep problems, distrust with any official titles and so on. But the, I'm not yeah. proud of it. It oh, yeah, makes life difficult. Like you know, I automatically, when somebody calls me with a professor or whatever, yeah. I, uh, I take it automatically as an irony. Oh, no, no, but it isn't, but you've earned it. That's the thing, it's not like the inherited knows? title, it's not like Who you're a lord or something. Look at what Chomsky uh, wrote about me and so on and uh, said, yeah, yeah, I was I, a little I bit kind of critical by, of you. Okay, yes. sorry, I talk too much. No, 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 no you're, 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 you're doing very well. No. But, but, you know, the thing, the most um, obvious fact about you is that you are not just a philosopher, but you're a famous philosopher. And that's kind of cool, it's a rare thing, right? So, so I'm going to ask you about the philosopher thing in a bit, but, but <coughs> I would like to find out about, about um, what does it mean to you uh, that, that you're famous? You know, is, is, is fame um, First, somehow important? fame is very or? relative. I have, as you know, maybe better than me, many enemies. People who think that I'm just a clown, yeah. people who think that beneath my amusing nature, there is some evil proto-fascist or Stalinist, whatever dimension, and so on. So I think my so-called fame is basically just a way to keep me at a distance, not to engage seriously with what I'm doing. I seriously yeah. think, you know, this fame in conversation, as far as I can guess, functions like this. Oh, he's an interesting guy, don't take him too seriously, but go to one of his talks, you will be amused, and yeah, so on, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I'm very proud, what I'm really yes. proud of is that it's not limited to this. Yes. For example, you know my crazy book, The Length of the Bible, almost, less than nothing. Yes. Yes. You know that it sold very well, over 10,000 in English. In Korea it was reprinted three times. Why? I don't know, but it gives me hope. <laughs> yes. That nonetheless, don't underestimate the public. The but publishers themselves, now they are putting pressure on me. Why don't you write a nice bestseller on Donald Trump? Why should I? He's not interesting at all as a person. He's a boring idiot and so on. So, But, but are you worried about your books becoming sort of, sort of coffee table books? You know, people buy them, but they don't actually read them. Oh, I am with... with, with uh, but there is a big philosophical tradition. Now you started another topic that interests me. You know that they are not... I wouldn't say coffee table book, but... I will characterize them as big bestsellers, classics. People buy them, yeah. nobody really reads them. And I will give you a list. John Rawls' uh, uh, Theory of Justice. I know in New York people who wrote a book on Rawls, and privately they admitted to me they didn't read the book. <laughs> and I think they are right, because unfortunately Rawls, uh, the way he writes, you really can... Con condense it into like 50 pages and you don't lose a lot. Habermas, theory of communicative action. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mega. Let's go on. He's my friend, although a right-winger, but he's provocative, I like him. Peter Sloterdijk, his uh -huh. spheres. Do you think people really read them? And ah, uh, 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 Robert Brandon, making it explicit. All these are famous books uh, reprinted all the time. People, people don't read them. Yeah, yeah. And I have some suspicions that it's up to a point similar even with Hegel. Phenomenology, maybe. But with logic, you know, yeah. I have doubts if people really read Greater them. Logic. But in a way, I don't think it matters. Here is my, I claim Hegelian view. Did you read a wonderful book by a French author, now it's translated, uh, Pierre Bayard, B-A-Y-A-R-D. It's called How to Talk About Books That You Haven't Read. And the beauty is that in the best French style, it's not just uh, irony. He takes it seriously and proves, precisely apropos of Joyce and some others, that the best books on certain authors, because he went to check it up yeah. with authors, I mean, who wrote about this yeah. writer, are written by guys who didn't read all of it. He goes to ah, Shakespeare, people who don't... The, uh, sometimes, and that's a deep dialectical Hegelian view, Hegel is not a holist in the sense you have to know all aspects. No, the art of dialectics is the right violent abstraction. You say, ignore all that, focus on one feature, and then let 
this one feature color your entire approach. This is the only way to produce something really new. So I claim that the paradox of philosophy. You don't have to read it all. If you yeah. know too much, you just get confused. <laughs> but but so so what about you know so people buying your books and, and perhaps not reading them? Do you nonetheless sort of see this as a good sign in the sense that people are kind of interested in philosophy? And is yes, because I nonetheless my secret hope is that there is a certain strata of people who are looking for just jokes. Yeah. So I got some not exactly hate mail, but. Uh, after this series of my latest, more philosophical books, like Absolute Recoil, which, if you ask me at a gunpoint, I think that's my, sorry to say this, I even find it too arrogant myself, my best book, Absolute Recoil. But I got hate mail like, where are the jokes, not enough jokes, and so on. Yes. But you know what's the, the secret here? I will tell you. Uh, some people who accused me that behind my vulgar jokes, appearances, that I'm a very traditional even philosopher. In some sense they are right and I returning to them. Don't you see that behind all my jokes and so on, even the reason I even use Lacan is strictly as a means to reinterpret Hegel. I'm very old-fashioned here. My friend, we don't think the same, yeah, but we good yeah. relations. Robert Pippin. Yeah. Once we talked and came to the same conclusion, still, it's a very traditional that still the big thing in history of philosophy is Kant Hegel, all these questions. Was the move from Kant to Fichte legitimate? Yes. What happened with Hegel? Is he a... I, I, I see that, that's really interesting, especially for someone who's also interested in the history of philosophy. Yeah. Of course, you know... At philosophy now, we're very interested in what philosophy can do in our time. So, what do you think philosophy can or should do More than in ever our time? Needed. And is is Hegel particularly significant? Absolutely. What what is it that even you to want provoke, to do? To provoke my Marxist friends, you know. I uh, uh, also I consider some, myself some kind of a Marxist. I like to say that the thesis eleven of Feuerbach for our time should be philosophers and others have tried to change too much things <laughs> in the 20th century. 20th century, they tried to do it. What my friend Alain Badiou calls passion of the real. Let's really change things. The result were, were to put it mildly, uh, uh, Gulag, uh, uh, Holocaust, not exactly the best. No? So maybe the time today is to not try to change, but step back and precisely to interpret, to think. Because even at this level, would you agree with it? I think what we need today is a materialist reversal of Marx back to Hegel. Hegel is in a subtle way much more materialist. You know which Hegel I like? When Hegel, when he says, you know, the, one of the most famous passages uh, uh, from his philosophy of right, the all of Minerva takes off yes. in the evening. Yes. Yes. But you know that this simple sentence yes. belies the usual claim Hegel was a conservative who in his philosophy of life right, painted uh, almost proto-fascist, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how do you call it, stand, uh, state, yeah. picture of society. So what, what do you think it means? I think it means something different. When Hegel says a certain social order, historical order, can only be grasped when it's time it's over. Yeah. That's the man, no? Yeah. Yeah. But do you think really Hegel was such an idiot that he didn't know the same as called for his philosophy of right? The message, he doesn't bring in his philosophy of right a system of how our society should look. He paints a certain world whose time has passed, and he knew it. But where I think Hegel is actual, so that I don't lose my thread, is here. Our situation is much more Hegel's than Marx's. Marx still believed in some kind of minimal teleology, you know, like... Uh, uh, like we are at the crucial point, there is a chance, if not necessity, of proletarian revolution, universal redemption. When Hegel perceived his situation as a post-revolutionary one, the big event happened, French Revolution, in some sense it went wrong, but Hegel is here truly progressive. The whole problem of his thought is not to say French Revolution was a bullshit, let's return yeah, to tradition, yeah. but how to repeat it, how yeah. to keep in spite of some catastrophic yeah. outcomes, the legacy alive. So and I think our situation is the same. 20th century uh, attempts at radical emancipation, yeah. the communism yeah. we got there, 
they failed. So the problem is how to, yeah, how to keep that legacy alive. We have to abandon all that Marxist, simple, metaphoric, we are riding the train of history, mm. and there is, you know, I always use these metaphors, uh, ironically. Marxists like to say, even if times are dark, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And you know with which metaphor I always run. Yes, it. it is, but it's <laughs> the light of another train coming <laughs> again. You know, so but, that's but our situation. That really and as Hegel what, knew what, it, what? it's open. We cannot make any plans. Hegel, this is very Hegelian. But the light could be anything. I mean, it doesn't have to be another train. It could really be the light at the end of the tunnel, couldn't it? Yes, and but that, that's why the beginning is to get rid of false hopes. Even the left today is mostly, we have the majority, which yeah. I ironically call them this, is still, after Fukuyama, left Fukuyamaists, they are most. They basically accept liberal democracy and some type of capitalism are the only game in town, so let's just get it. Better, more solidarity, healthcare, gay marriages, whatever you want. Yeah. The big question is, yeah. then we have some, some uh, the biggest irony of, this is my answer to Fukuyama. Yeah. Yes. Once I met him, I told him this, he laughed. Is that, okay, let's say you are right, capitalism won. But isn't the irony that today, now, in the most efficient managers of global capitalism are communists who are still in power, you know. <laughs> so I think that we have finally well, to accept that 20th century is over. The way we did it in 20th century, either social democratic welfare state, hardline real socialism, or even more, that's my, what I yeah. hate, this type, any dreams which are coming alive now on some kind of non-representative direct democracy. Yes, I mean, I don't a, believe in also, this. Also, isn't that the problem of, of, of labels? So when you, when you say capitalism is actually, you know, sort of driven forward, no. but communists are still, still somehow ah, you in know power. What's for but, me. but, you know, there's a problem of labels, right? What do we mean exactly by capitalism, which takes many, many forms? Yeah. And, of course, communists who are capitalism aren't really communists, although they, you know, no, might have the problem, so, but so we've got a problem okay, with those in labels. In what sense I'm still a communist? Just in a very limited sense. Right. First, isn't there, aren't we today witnessing a great irony? The left, whatever remains of the left, obviously is not able to offer an actual feasible global alternative. Like whenever the leftist protests, I remember when there was Occupy Wall Street. Yes. I was with them in New York, in Frankfurt, ah, and I <coughs> insisted asking them a stupid question. Yes. What do you want? Yes. I told them, Freud yes. asked the wrong question, was yes. will the swipe? I claimed, what do you want? What do you want? And they, they, nobody gave me the answer, and I think that precisely because they don't know what they want, yeah. the left takes escape into moralism, the excesses of political correctness, and so on and so on. So, my problem is this one. On the one hand, we have all these protests, which don't have a clear idea. On the other hand, don't we get clear signs all around yes. that capitalism, at least yes. the way we know it, yes. is approaching an end? Look at, oh, I think, we'll look, <laughs> yeah, look at economy. I'm sorry, look at, look at ecology. It's obvious that although capitalism can do something through taxes, regulation, it's not enough. When there is a, a big catastrophe, you need larger actions. Look at, here I agree with Fukuyama, look at the dark potentials of biogenetics. Our brains can already be, and that's the philosophical yes. problem even, our brains can already be directly wired, connected with the... PC. It gives us magical power. You can really do it. Do you know that Stephen Hawking yeah, no longer yeah. needs his finger? That's he it. thinks forward, his wheelchair moves forward. Sure, sure, sure. But at the same time, it goes the other way around. Right, right, right. I think, for example, so, this is the thing. The possibility of directly wiring our brain, which will change the very basic definition of what a human being is. My so, so we're back with labels, even with the label of a human with being. With labor. You know but, what's but, the but, problem with but the labor? No, but also, I was going to ask you, you mentioned political correctness, which is, I think, a very interesting issue. So, so do you think... No, sorry, just to finish that line. Then oh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. All I want to say is that... And I'm sorry, I know I speak too much. No, 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 all no, I want no, to good. say is that we have a serious... Financial capital, all this fictitious capital, 
It doesn't help if European banks, for example, are throwing hundreds of billions of freshly printed money into economy. If most of it, it gets lost in fictitious capital speculations. Yes. Then we have the problem of refugees and so on. We have all these problems. Intellectual property, if you ask me. Capitalism is falling apart here. Even people like, I despise them, like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, even they talk about it. But but you know who said the right pessimist thing here? You must know him, it's your fellow. I mean, the German sociologist, economist, who is now modest bestseller, Wolfgang Streeck, with okay, two yeah. is. He said that something totally unexpected for Marxists happens. Capitalism is clearly approaching its limit, but for Marxists, this always meant there is another more progressive force waiting to take over. Today, capitalism is just disintegrating, you know. Yes. Getting okay. into trouble, we see that it will have to improvise more and more, and already we have the first very sad consequence, yes. as I always warn. A new figure of uh, global... Uh, country, the ideal country is a country which is fully integrated into global market, but at the same time ideologically yes. it's ethnocentric, focused on its culture. Yes. Uh, uh, even Trump is doing this. That's why Trump gets well with all dictators. His basic deal with Saudi Arabia is, we are part of the same market, you buy our arms, we buy your oil, whatever. Oil. It doesn't matter what you do to women there, it's your problem. This logic of uh, partial cultures, China is playing this game, India, Modi is playing this game, Putin is playing this game and so on. So, uh, uh, we are approaching a new world where uh, Global market will coexist with a lack of universally accepted yes. emancipatory rules. This is very yeah. sad. But to go back to uh, to go back to your question, why communism? Because I think that all the problems that I enumerated okay. are the problems sorry, of no, communism. Sorry, can I stop for one second? Um, can, can ah, sorry, take sorry, because I think sorry. the camera sort of keep bubbling. I'm yeah. so sorry. Sorry, no, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, that's very kind. Thank no. you. Sorry. Yeah. What I want to say is the problems. These are my beautiful dreams. I said something too much, especially, <laughs> and then they will jump down this, this <laughs> arrest at all. You will also be arrested. Oh, great. Sorry, okay. sorry. Let's go on. All the problems that I enumerated, I claim, are ultimately the problems of what Marx called commons. Some shared substance which shouldn't be privatized left to the market. Like a uh, Ecology is the problem of our natural substance, to what extent we can manipulate it and so on. Intellectual property, it's the problem of our intellectual substance. Uh, biogenetics, problem of our substance and so on and so on. In this sense, as I put it once, ironically, communism is for me not a solution, but the name of the problem today. And we will have to find a solution at that level of how to deal with commons, with our commons outside market relations. My God, even my friend who is otherwise despised as almost neo-fascist, Peter Sloterdijk, oh, yes. in a chapter of his, I don't know, he writes even faster than me, although it's unthinkable, I think it's Vasgeschein's something, what happened in 20th century, his book, he also comes to the same conclusion. The era of nation states where the highest ethical value is, are you ready to sacrifice yourself for your country? Oh, yeah. It's over. We need, to, we need to make a step for, for example, just imagine this, a friend of mine, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y, maybe you should interview him, he is very intelligent, theorist of catastrophes. He told me that he was in Fukushima, two days, as part of some European delegation, uh, 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 to days after that big uh, 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 tsunami and then uh, radiation. He told me that, you know, for a couple of hours, the Japanese government was in total panic. They thought that the radiation will be so strong that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area. Yeah. Where would these people go? The problem, in the old days, it would be invasion. These people invade another country. Today, you can do it. We need larger transnational forms of cooperation. The only deal, way to deal with economy, the only way to deal with biogenetics, if just singular states regulate it, then Chinese, they are doing it already like crazy, I mean. 
rich American, you have 20 clinics in suburbs of Shanghai yeah. where rich Western parents go and they manipulate before even if you bore the genes of your... All I'm saying is that I, first as a good Marxist still, uh, I'm absolutely not simply against capitalism. Yes. I think capitalism, let's face it, it's the most dynamic system in the history of so. humanity. It brought incredible progress and so on. That's why. What does this mean? That, and this brings me a lot of trouble. I'm absolutely opposed to this bullshit of, of uh, relying on local indigenous traditions yeah. to fight global capitalism. Yeah. No, we have to fight it on its own terms with new universal global vision. Yeah. Capitalism, that's what my friends don't get it. It began, it's very instructive to study British colonization of India. It wasn't you should all become like us. It was no, you should keep your culture. You know that under the influence of the British colonizers, the traditional caste system mm -hmm. in 19th century was even reinforced, yeah. brought to new life. Yes. So I claim that, uh, uh, and this is why another paradoxical confusion, who is okay. my hero? Yeah. Malcolm X. He saw it. <laughs> yeah. Malcolm yeah. X, you know what X stands for? We were uprooted. From, but he saw it clearly that this X means we have no substantial particular way of life to which we can return. But he saw something ingenious. His point was so our African-American. I never liked this term because it's, it means like Caribbean blacks can say, what are we and so on. But okay, the, the return is not roots. Oh, let's look for, it's to use this fact that we are deprived of our ethnic substance as a chance of new, even more authentic universality okay. than that of my. So again, my point is we have to go through capitalism. Okay, so then no, no, no escape back into, but at the same time, we have to move over, not because I'm a utopian and want more, but it's clear that capitalism itself is approaching a crisis in the simple sense that the problems it encounters today, from ecology and so on, I am here a pessimist in the sense that Capitalism will not be over to yeah. resolve them in its own terms, which is why we get these paradoxes now. I didn't forget it. I return to your question, labor. Listen, I find yes. it so irrational that people are afraid of robotization mm. because it will cause unemployment. This should be the best news that we ever heard. Nobody says, perfect, we will have to work less. Yes, less yes. No, oh, the automatic assumption is it's a catastrophe. We all, we all used to think that. You know, in the 1970s, we had all these science fiction stories where yes. all the machines would eventually do all the work and we would have a lot of time yeah, but to In principle, to it can, be, it can be done. We live now in irrational society where we are afraid of unemployment, yes. but those who work, work more and more intensely. I, I want to come back to, to something else because, you know, you've taken us on a really, really interesting journey so we, we, we started off with Hegel and sort of we started at a sort of highly theoretical level we talked about you know sort yeah, of yeah. philosophy yeah. in that sense and you've you've you've, you've, you've pointed us Stop to real the, life problems sort of really you know very very <laughs> yeah, down yeah. to earth real problems <laughs> and for, for me the question still remains of you know so what is the philosopher meant to do do you look at yourself mainly as a theorist you've used theorist. Absolutely but you, you also talked about your activism. Is there, is there a connection between theory yeah, and practice? But, but, and, uh, but you need theory well, what, what to see where theorist? activism fails. Really you need theory to see where the activism fails. Yeah, Especially yeah. the left theory. Isn't the whole history of the left, even in the last century, one big history of catastrophic failures? Which is why, as I put it somewhere ironically, the best Marxist books were usually analysis after the effect of why a revolution had to go, had to go wrong. Yeah. Trotsky's analysis, and isn't it said that all we get are excellent analysis of why we lost, sorry, of why we lost. So, I would say, why philosophy? First, because I don't trust practice. Practice is blind without theory. We need theory today more than ever, and by theory, I don't mean this type of direct activist theory. No. We, we, wh why do we need but, theory? But, but will the practice really follow out of theory? Does that really, does that really happen, do you think? I mean, do you think as a theorist this is what, what you're I going don't, to achieve? Okay, I will be because very modest here. I will be very modest here. 
it's doubtful if we philosophers, I doubt it, will provide uh, a new platform, political program. But uh, I follow here Gilles Deleuze, otherwise I'm not a Deleuzean, who said somewhere that even more important than to give the right answers is to give, raise the right questions. And here philosophy can be of some use. We are dealing with serious problems today. But what if we should analyze the extent to which the very way we formulate these problems do, doesn't resolve them but reproduce the problems? And coming back to your question, that's why, for example, I have doubts about political correctness. Of course, I agree with its uh, goals. No humiliation against power relations. But you know what makes me so sad? And here at least a little bit of philosophy enters. <laughs> Think about the figure of human being that is silently presupposed by political correctness. It's obsession with harassment and victimization. We are always threatened. I look into your, I don't want to choose the lady, eyes for two seconds too long, visual rape. I was all, uh, so this, the vision is very sad beneath it. The vision is the one of, we are all potential victims, and even, I, I think, think that's that, true. Hey? I don't think that's Oh my true. God, you should visit an American campus there and see <laughs> how... You know what? I already experienced that. Yeah. Once I gave a speech and a lady stood up and said, uh, I am half black and I am, uh, I am a single mother, I have AIDS and you are wrong. It was so tragic that she didn't even have to go into details. No, you have this logic of... Look. Yeah, but that's, that's an abuse, isn't it? I mean, I think on the whole, political correctness just tells us that we should, you know, that we should adjust our language to, you know, the, the reality... Yeah, but the way, the way the it does it... Okay, okay. But the way it does it misfires. Because for me, the true step beyond racism yeah. is not to change the language. We would have to go now more into philosophy. But even to use the same language, but in a different, ironic, uh, 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 non-racist way. Yeah. Look, for example, my black friends in the United States, they all provoke me and tell me, call me nigger. You know what this means? Of course I shouldn't call them nigger. It's an empty offer. But what they want to signal me in this way, it's not I'm a masochist, I want to be humiliated, but simply we have a real contact. I doubt if you can have a real contact with a real person without at least, it doesn't work always, but as a rule, a small exchange of obscenities or something like that. But sorry, what I want to say, back to my basic point, yes. is that all these problems that we have, even with political correctness, yeah. how language functions, yes. are we free or not, uh, with digitalization, with, uh, with uh, brain scientists, yeah. these are basically philosophical problems yes. and ordinary people will have to deal with them. Abortion is maybe the first case of this. Are we aware that to answer the question, I'm for it, don't misunderstand, but to answer the question should there be abortion or not? You have implicitly at least to answer some philosophical question, old values. You cannot simply say let's yeah. look at Christianity or yes. whatever. Yes. Because precisely because we are in this confused state mm. where we cannot simply rely on old norms. Like again, yeah. something like direct link of our brains with the computer changes our entire pedagogy. What does it mean to learn something when you just click the button and uh, you know that? So what I'm saying is that questions usually reserved for philosophy will become everyday questions. Yes. And the next thing that happens... But, but it's the other way around anyway, isn't it? I mean, everyday questions actually are philosophical questions. Because yeah, a lot of yeah, but the problem, problem is this. The problem with some brain scientists as others, they think that philosophy is over. Like Stephen Hawking put it in one of his last books that philosophy is that, in some ironic sense he is, not even ironic, he is right. And I think, and now we come from actual questions to my philosophical concerns, uh, the big tragedy for me was this, I call it transcendental linguistic turn, where uh, all these, let's call them this way, naive, direct, ontological questions, were prohibited, were considered naive, so that all you were allowed to do is to 
reflect on the horizon of understanding or as, as Michel Foucault would have put it, on the episteme, for example. If you were to ask Michel Foucault or a Foucauldian, yes. do I have an immortal soul? His answer would have been something like, we should analyze within which discursive field it's, we can even raise this question. Right. All you can do is just to point out the, the horizon, discursive horizon within which it's happening, and so this big, naive, ontological question, what's the origin yeah, of our yeah. universe, and so on, were neglected. That's why I think that natural science is entered, and uh, the philosophical game, and Hawking is right, where he said, what, till one, two hundred years ago, were considered philosophical questions. Does the world have a beginning or not? Do we have free will, so and so on? So on. These are today perceived as scientific questions. Uh, here I remain a traditional European philosopher. Yes. I don't think philosophy disappears. I don't think positive natural science can do the entire job. There is still a work for philosophy to do it, but at the same time we have to break out of this transcendental reflexive questioning and we have to and that's the big problem. We have to, what people like Cantin, Meyasu and all these new materialists are doing, we have to return to big ontological questions, but in a non-naive, not, not naive, naive realist way. You cannot, and that's my problem. That's why I look into yes. Hegel. How to yes. move beyond the alternative between Kantian transcendentalism, things in itself of out there we don't care about yeah. them, all we can do is our horizon of understanding, and naive realism. We humans are part of a universe, a universe we are just one of the elements. No, I think that I, I work so hard about this specific problems. The whole first part, 300 pages of my absolute recoil works of this. Again, how to break out of the transcendental horizon without falling into naive realism. And again, I think Hegel is the way, or even at this level, I see the great legacy of Christianity. Hegel's trick is that the problem itself is its own solution. And in what sense Christianity? What's the Christian solution? I'm an atheist, incidentally. But I see a certain legacy in Christianity. Yes. Let's say you, as a believer, feel abandoned by God. Right. What's the Christian solution? It's not, oh, if you work hard, fast yourself, you will rejoin God. No, it's a much more radical one. It's at that point, when you feel abandoned, you identify with Christ that you know, Eli, Eli, Lama, uh, Father, why have you forsaken me? Yes. So you transpose your division, your separation from God yes. into God himself. God on the cross is separated from himself. Yeah. It means okay. that the very distance, the very gap is part of the thing itself. Right. And this is the formula that Hegel repeats again and again. Yeah. He's, it's not to reach some unity above the gap. It's to see how what you experience as separation yes. is a negativity inscribed into the absolute okay, I itself. Can, I can see that now. I, I, I do very fast now. I okay, it, yes, but, but, but also I can see that, that also, again, following Hegel, clearly, you know, there, there are different philosophical questions that, that come to the fore at different times. That's, that's, very, that's very clear. And you've, you've given us a good idea of what kind okay, of... Okay, now you are silently already sharpening your knife because <laughs> you strike, strike, but go to bat directly. <laughs> no, no, no. You've, you've you've shown us what kind of approach we might take. I was just wondering, you know, whether there's a sort of single philosophical question that you think is the salient question of our time. Maybe I will go into this. Maybe it may sound strange, but I would say the status of appearance. Because, the, uh, you know, uh, another way to wrap it up in one formula, yeah. what's the greatness of Hegel is that the usual, even for Kant, problem is always are we limited to our constraint, to our world of appearances? Can we move beyond to reach reality itself the way things really are? Yes. And Hegel, he says it somewhere. Hegel's <laughs> problem is the opposite one. Yes. The true miracle, that's the miracle of negativity. Yes. Is how come that reality is not just flat reality? Yeah. How can reality appear to itself? Mm. Because appearance means a terrible gap 
things are not directly what they are, they appear to themselves. And now, yes. if you dare to use it, to I, here I'm absolute Hegelian, the minimum of reflexivity yes. appearance is absolutely universal for me, now I'm jumping very fast. The lesson of quantum physics is that appearances matter. How you measure it, how things appear, determines what things are, and now you can use it or not. But is, I that like a, is that a I, translation problem, basically? No. no. Although there are translations, you know, in what sense? If one, to, one wants to be more seriously philosopher, one has to be very precise here. So Phenomena, phenomenon is not the same as erscheinung. Oh, no, no, I, I didn't you mean in terms of language. I meant in terms of spheres. You know, when, when, you, when you're sort of talking about, when you talk about the quantum level, Yes. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a gap and there's a I know, and I'm totally opposed to those simplists who claim, who want to somehow ground the possibility of human freedom yes. directly into uncertainty, indeterminacy of oh, reality. Yes, well, yeah, no, but but I wasn't talking about it. All I was talking, what really attracts me, and it's a very abstract idea, yes. philosophically in quantum physics, yes. is A, this idea of, and I vary it a lot of times in my books, this idea of ontological incompleteness of reality. It's not as Lenin and naive materialist thought. Reality is out there fully real. We just cannot get to know it. Yeah. No, what if reality in itself is in a way structured around the gap, not fully real. Do you know the story? I love it for your readers. Maybe you know it, which is my favorite story here. I found it in some popular introduction to philosophy. Right. The guy tries to uh, read quantum physics, interrupt me, you know it, based on video games. You know, in video games, when you are immersed into a game, yes. reality there is not fully constituted. Yes. For example, you have a forest in the background. If it's not part of the game that you can go into that forest, then all the trees are not programmed in detail, or even most of the houses. You just see the outside of the house. If it's not part of the game that you enter the house, then we very well know that these houses are within the computer program. Without Okay. And the idea of this guy, I love it, is that something... Why did the TV prog uh, sorry, the game programmer not construct full reality? Because he would just lose time, it's meaningless. Why to, to, why to, to program the inside of a house when it's not part of the game that you enter it? Okay, the idea, isn't it wonderfully simple one? It's that uh, God did the same when he created universe. He stopped at subatomic level because he thought we humans are too stupid to progress so far. Oh, they will not be able to move beyond atoms, <laughs> so why should I bother to program velocity oh, and position? Okay, okay. And the idea is a very nice, cynical one, is that God underestimated us. We, with quantum physics, we, as it were, caught God with his pants down, you know? Ah, you were too late. But now comes the true definition of materialism for me. We can think this incompleteness without God. Yeah. You don't need a creator. Just reality is incomplete. Yeah. That's one mega result. Then there are many others. So you see, I'm very careful here. Mm -hmm. I don't try to teach quantum physicists. No, no, I just try to. I just try to uh, to provide a materialist, even philosophical reading. And I think it's important. Again, it all focuses on the status of appearances. So again, as Hegel says, the true problem is how appearances emerge. Or, as he put it, Hegel and other German idealists, uh, the problem is not, are we caught into our subjectivity, can we reach, the problem is, how must reality be structured in itself so that something like subjectivity, subjective appearance, can emerge out of it? You know, must there be some reflexivity, incompleteness, negativity already out yes. there? And, and uh, Hegel explicitly raises this question. That's why, that's my, now comes the provocation, as they would put in the United States, trigger warning, <laughs> you get it now. Yeah. Recently, a friend of mine showed me uh, some, uh, and I really mean it, I'm not denying that when I was young I didn't watch hard hardcore pornography. But a friend of mine has shown me some 
typical hardcore heterosexual scenes. And we analyzed them and came to the point how much more complex things are. Let's say this is traditional hardcore pornography addressed at a man. It's not true that woman is reduced to an object. No, woman is the only subject. Typical scene is this one. Woman is being penetrated. Man is reduced to pure instrument. We find dozens of movies he found where you don't even see man's face. He doesn't matter. So the typical scene is well, this because one. because you're taking the perspective of the man, that's why. No, I don't think so. I will tell you which perspective <laughs> you are taking. Uh, man is, you see in front, man's penis penetrating the woman, legs spread wide, and then in the background, between her thighs, you always see her face staring into the camera, or at least showing her face. Mm -hmm. So I claim you don't identify with the man. You identify with yourself as a viewer. What you are looking for is not your pleasure, but the confirmation that woman enjoys. So this is not greater, okay. greater for women. I claim women are in this way even more humiliated. Yeah. I'm not a fan. What I'm saying is that even here, when you think, oh my God, it's just sex, whatever. The structure is that of minimal reflexivity. Uh, it doesn't, if you were to show just from a close-up sex organs penetrating each other, it would have been vulgar, boring. It has to be. The woman stares back and it's very humiliating for her. She has to do, oh, I will not go into it, all the sounds and so on. Yes. But what I'm saying is that how you see how even in the most immediate sexual pressure, the structure is more complicated one. And isn't the same lesson for quantum yeah. physics that measurement is not a measurement of some reality which is out there. Measurement in a way constitutes partially reality. But how? How to read this in a non-ideal... doesn't constitute reality. Measurement constitu constitutes the way that, that we... We look at reality, right? Ah, it's a little, ah, is a, it's a little bit more radical. Here it was speaking. a conflict between your, no problem, between your guy, your guy, I mean ironically, yeah. Heisenberg and, and Bill's Bohr. Mm. Heisenberg thought that his uncertainty principle is only epistemological. Mm -hmm. We cannot measure at the same time velocity and position of a particle. Bohr criticized him. Bohr claimed, no, this uncertainty is in the thing itself. Rea particles do not have at the same time. So the problem is that measuring the appearance, the effect, in a way affects reality itself. And again, the problem is how to read this in a non-idealist way. You know, to avoid all that bullshit that, oh, uh, there must be a mind to construct. So I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it has to do with the structure of reality, but maybe also it has to do with the expectations we have of reality, wouldn't you say? Okay, but again, uh, the, 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 I agree with you, but I would nonetheless add here the Hegelian point. The big pro don't put reality there and us here. How, yes. how, yeah, I, how is that. reality structured so that yeah. our expectations of reality can influence it? But okay, not lose, let's not lose time here. You see which problems are bothering me here. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's why basically I'm an old-fashioned... I'm even tempted to say old-fashioned philosopher. I think we didn't yet really move beyond Hegel. What happened after Hegel was different variations of transcendentalism, even the most creative Marxism. Therefore, be uh, praxis transcendentalist. Human collective praxis is the ultimate transcendental horizon of how we perceive either they're transcendentalists or they're like vulgar, naive materialists. Okay, thank, thank you very much. I, I would like to just move on to, so we Please. can talk just very briefly at least about your, your new books. So you've got a new, a new book out again. I have no idea how you do this, but... Ah, so I cheat, I cheat. I copy myself all the time. Oh, Many of the brilliant. political oh, okay. books. Uh, no, no, no. It's not like people think, do you write 20 pages per day? No, no, no. My output is quite humor, or to put it in ironic terms. Somebody like Sloterdijk writes three, four times more than me. <laughs> Don't okay. worry here. Um, so, so now, God, your new book is, is, is called, and I haven't read it yet because I haven't been able to see a copy, but... Uh, uh, if you want to, today I can send both to both of you the p final proof. You're so, so but kind. You, no, um, no, no, so and so I promise you something. So, listen, uh, you will see that I have met. And I promise you, if we ever meet again, I will never ask you, did you already have the time to read it? <laughs> I hate authors who do this. You know, here you have my book, 
but then you get them. Oh, did you maybe already have a chance to read it? Sorry, go on. We'll read it as well. Yeah. So, so the book is called uh, Incontinence of the Void, uh, Economical Philosophical Sandals. Now, okay, so, so, so I've, I've, I've just had this short summary that, uh, that I looked at, right. and, and that, uh, that said that you explore, quote, the empty spaces between philosophy, psychoanalysis, and the critique of political economy. Now, okay, to talk about Spandrels, um, it's a term from Stephen Jay Gould uh, and uh, so on. You know the, it, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with the term. So, so it comes from, from architecture, but then finds use yeah. in, in evolutionary biology. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, so to, to talk about Spandrels really means that, of course, you have to assume the integrity of those disciplines. So, where you, where, you know, if you're trying ah, to find here, spaces, then... here I would doubt then, it. Why? Well, because, Why? you know, can't if you're trying you say, to find those spaces, you then you have to assume the arches, don't you? I would have claimed in a Hegelian way Sorry, can I be of any help now? Uh, I, you see, things always make me, make me nervous. Uh, I, I, my solution would have been that um, what if every field, in order to exist, needs a spandrel, needs an empty place which can be transformed? Is the thesis of Gould, for example, that you don't have fully constituted organisms and then by chance spandrels and so on. The whole evolution, according to Gould, is based on spandrels. You have empty spaces, you have organs of no use with just remain like appendings. Yes, but, so. but they are byproduct of, of things that, that have been, you know, have been driven towards... Yeah, but, um, my, I, but his idea, and he is really radical here, things. is that yeah. this imbalance, in the sense that a product never, never, fully fits its function. There is an element byproduct. He goes to the end, and the beauty of Gould is that he interprets, accounts for human language in this way. Yeah. It's, an, it's a byproduct. It yeah, wasn't yeah, meant right. to be. But a byproduct of things that, that, that are actually driven by, by uh, adaptive values. So, so, so there are other things that have adaptive, uh, adaptive values, so you have to assume the exact Though, Yeah, the but for him, adaptation work, works through spandrels. Works through spandrels. That well, would be my view. Yeah, but the paradox is that uh, think itself, the thing itself cannot ever, not even conceptually fully function. You need byproducts. You need all the time byproducts. Our entire human progress, but even in animal king, greatness of Darwin for good, is, is, is based in byproducts. So, uh, uh, going back to my book, what I would have said is that, is that uh, in the same way, uh, I think that from the very beginning, uh, that, okay, I'll put it like this. I think I'm going to the whole end. Some, something happens with modern philosophy. By modern philosophy, I'm old-fashioned here. I mean post-Kantian, Kant and post-Kantian thought, which has a privileged link with other fields, with, for example, psychoanalysis. I claim that Freud was not simply a positive scientist and so on. There is, a, this is maybe the fundamental thesis of my work. The philosophy, or the philosophical stance implied by Freud. It's not some simple naturalism in the sense of sexuality is important and so on. It's a, a vision of man which fits Kantian philosophy or German idealism. So uh, uh, for me, my ultimate task would be to, to read again German idealism against the background of what psychoanalysis brought us. Because psychoanalysis is, uh, is a much more delicate thing. It's not this substantialism of the unconscious, you know, all these stupid metaphors. Our conscious ego is just like the tip of the iceberg, all the depth there. No, unconscious is purely phenomenal for Freud. Uncon for you, Jung has a substantial notion of the unconscious. No? So again, in one line, my program is that only by reading psychoanalysis through German idealism can we arrive at what psychoanalytic revolution really amounts to and vice versa. Only against, only reread through Freud can we keep alive the tradition of German idealism. And I think here it's a line, I'm saying this still as a kind of leftist, Marxist, more important than Marx himself. I think philosophically, Marx following Feuerbach and all those is a regression with regard to Hegel. But when you ask me that, my point is this one. Uh, 
it, I, now I can give you an only a very condensed version. The idea came to me and to my good friend Joe Kovjek that the structure, you know, Lacan in his seminar, ele, uh, seminar 20, encore, on feminine jouissance and some others, develops his famous or infamous formulas of sexuation. He wants to account for the masculine versus feminine sexuality through some logical paradoxes, universality with exception and so on. And John Kovjak originally came to this idea that what Lacan is describing there, and he wasn't aware of it, I checked with his people who knew Lacan, are the very structures of Kantian antinomies. Dynamic antinomies are what Lacan calls ma uh, uh, masculine, mathematical antinomies are what Lacan calls uh, feminine. So, uh, of course, I'm not talking about biological sexuality. I'm talking about why our universe, even the most abstract conceptual universe, is sex. Because of certain paradoxes of symbolization and so on and so on. My second point is that this Kantian structure of antinomies, as the ultimate horizon, we cannot move beyond them. Kant's mistake was that, as Hegel put it in his well-known critique of Kant, that Kant was too tender towards things. For him, antinomies were limited to our knowledge. Antinomies were things themselves cannot be antinomic. Hegel's point is, yes, they can. So what I try to do is, through this approach, by taking Kantian antinomies seriously in the sense of they concern the thing itself, to read the implicit Kantian and Hegelian then ontology in accordance to what I improvised that uh, unfinished universe and so on. It means that the world in itself is antinomic, not fully constituted and so on. That's, uh, th there we have the connection with uh, Freud, sexuality, sexual difference and ontology. I'm moving very fast. You may not be you, convinced. You I'm just giving you the outline. Yes, My good. next step is an old-fashioned Marxist, but it's letting Hegel believe that nonetheless capitalism is something exceptional. The logic of, and here we come back to your spectrals and so on, the logic of surplus value that we find in capitalism, where the thing cannot exist without its surplus. What appears as a secondary surplus is the very motive, what triggers it and so on. I, in the second part of the book, I go into detail, in detail of this parallel between what Lacan calls surplus enjoyment. The additional twist in enjoyment which changes simple pleasure in what we usually call in more emphatic terms enjoyment. And I give, I hope some of them will be amusing, numerous examples. For example, for me, uh, what fascinates me is, I give you a, a horrible political example of enjoyment in pain. You know, my God, you must know it. Goebbels' Totaler Krieg speech. He does something genius in a terrifying way, Goebbels, there in Palast in early 43. All he promises to German people is more suffering. He says, do you want a Krieg, a war which will be so total that you cannot even imagine how much you will suffer? And people can... So these paradoxes of pleasure in pain, or what I claim is that for a certain type, I'm now jumping just to give an idea to examples, for a certain type of sexuality, maybe it's protestant sexuality, if you don't feel guilty, you, you don't really enjoy it. You have to add guilt to, enjoy, to pleasure to really enjoy it. And I think all these twists of how uh, an obstacle, far from blocking the thing, conditions it, keeps you moving. For example, I'm sorry, this will appear sexist, by, but I love the example. A friend of mine told me this story, maybe you even know it, how? He told me that he had an affair with an elder lady who had a beautiful body, but she, the lady, told him that uh, her last lover who saw her naked told her that except for one or two kilos too much, she has a perfect body. And my friend made the right reaction. He told her, 
just don't lose that one or two kilos. Because the paradox is that you have to have one or two kilos too much. In this way, you create the illusion that without those two kilos too much, your body is perfect. But if you effectively take away one or two kilos, you lose also the perfection. You know, and this fundamental imbalance, the surplus which bothers, with, uh, bothers harmony, is the very retroactive condition of harmony. Marx traced it, but he wasn't radical enough. Marx's dream of communism was that we can get capitalist dynamics, always more expansion, without the obstacle, without this paradox. Okay, it's more complex, but what I want to say is that for me, capitalism is in this sense an ontological phenomenon. It's the first social order and the only in the history of humanity where imbalance is not a problem, it's a solution. This is why always Marxists had a problem with capitalism. They always count on crisis, but then the more capitalism is in crisis, the strong, st stronger it emerges out of it, you know. Mm -hmm. So yes. I deal with these ontological consequences of capitalism, and then I do something very pessimist at the end. I claim that in the classical Marxist view, when you get a, that proletarian revolutions, revolutions will not be contained in this bourgeois deadlock, you want something, freedom, the result is catastrophic and so on. Know that we have to accept that all revolutions, even proletarian ones, are, are caught in a process that they don't dominate. Like, you want something like October Revolution. Okay, we can play this game that it was meant in a great way, but nonetheless, it was a big attempt at liberation. Yeah, there are no ended controlled revolutions. Sorry? There are no controlled revolutions. Yeah, there are no controlled revolutions. We have to, we have to accept. It's a very Hegelian view, because, you know, Marx is here literally more idealist. Marx thought, and you have this nicely done in early Lukacs, still one of the greatest books of 20th century, Geschichte und Klassenbewusstsein, Marx thought that proletarian revolution will be a self-transparent act. At that point of history, working class, the subject, will know what it is doing and do it. No, as you put it nicely, it's not controlled. Yes. It's not self-transparent. You have the same historical dialectic and so on. So, And then I approach, at the end of the book, these questions that I really like, wonderful questions of mortality in communism. And although I don't like... like I fight not only against transparency of revolutions, but against these visions that somehow in communism private life will be better if there will be communism. I claim, no, who knows, maybe it will be worse and so on. <laughs> and you yes. know whom I take as an example? I like to jump from one to another okay, example. Sostakovich, uh, the, the, oh, the yes. 14th symphony. It's really a symphony about death, dying. And it's so openly, brazenly pessimist, etc. No wonder he wasn't able to perform it while he was still alive and so on. So again, uh, without betraying Marxism, I think we should introduce this, let's call it historical density in all social processes, also the progressive ones. They are non-transparent, the result is another one and so on, which means that fundamentally we never know what we are doing. Okay. The act is by definition displaced, you get something else and so on that's, and so on. That's actually a, a nice a nice note on which to, to end this particular um, segment. I was just going to ask you one last question. So, so there may well be a lot of uh, readers or, or people yeah. actually see this video, so they say, oh, it turns out he's a really interesting guy. So what, what should they read? You know, what to recommend one of your many books or, or maybe even a book about If they you? have the time, the will, please read philosophical stuff. For example, I think I wrote a short philosophical book on Ereignis event, it was translated also in German, which precisely tries to go through all the dimension, the Heideggerian event, Ereignis, the ultimate catastrophe, Ereignis, end of the world, the Ereignis of the fall, then all the three greatest philosophers, they are for me, uh, uh, Plato, Descartes, Hegel. Ah. Why? Because each of them defined the whole posterity. As Michel Foucault put it somewhere, 
isn't the whole history of philosophy a history of criticism of Plato? The whole, <laughs> how, and after Descartes, they all want to get rid of Descartes. 19th century, they all want to get rid of Hegel, how to. And I think they are all philosophers of an event. Cartesian cogito is not a thought wrongly uh, thinking substance. It's a pure self-relating event of thinking. The same of Hegel. So I would say read Ereignis event. Okay, If you have brilliant. more energy, a little bit more, read Absoluter Gegenstoss, the absolute recoil. Please okay. go also to these philosophical books. This is where my real work is. All the philosophical stuff, like the one I just published, The Courage of Hopelessness and so on. Listen, I'm doing them with some kind of what Sartre called mauvaise foi, bad conscience, you know. <laughs> It's as if somebody else should be, what do I know about society, about politics? I'm an amateur. I always have this feeling that somebody else should have been doing it, not me, and that I'm just filling in for somebody else. I feel bad with my, philo with my political books. My heart really is only in this more purely philosophical book. Thank you very much. That's, that's, that's fantastic. But Thank now you. you should be a good journalist. And I will, okay, interviewer. You know how I define it? Huh. Every idiot, and I hope you, the two of you are not one, can reproduce what I said. A true journalist can do this. You don't cheat. You use only what I said. But you combine it with other questions and montage it so that you make me say a totally different <laughs> thing, but I cannot complain. You say, fuck oh. off, sorry, you said this. <laughs> There's so a on. challenge. Thank you very this much. This is the challenge. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> thank you.